Occupation? Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Okay, welcome to the seventh encounter of the bullshit artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Grittenden. How you doing, Jack? I'm doing well, Rory. Glad to see you're uh, doing well also. <laughs> I am doing well. I'm alive and well, surprisingly. I went for a hike this uh, afternoon here in yes. Sedona. Yeah, Jordan Trail. Yes. It was fantastic. Okay. Did you? <laughs> I was just mentioning that, trying to make small talk. <laughs> What's the temperature <laughs> like now in Sedona? Uh, it's like 80s. It's okay, very that's nice. nice. Yeah, that's nice. So here, I have to get out if I'm doing a walkabout, you know, a five mile trek. I've got to get out. Today, I had to be back by 10 because according to my phone the temperature hit 90 at 10 o'clock so that's it that's the cutoff for me you don't go above 90 you don't no. step outside i do not well i mean i, I don't reason. go hiking or walking it no that's it yeah i don't blame you i mean like sun exposure is the main concern for me if you get stuck out there for any reason and your sunscreen wears off or whatever it's a it's a disaster i'm not so sure if you get stuck out there that sunscreen is your major problem well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess just um, for me specifically, because I always take enough water. I mean, now if I get if I break my leg and have 127 hours type scenario or whatever that movie was or that real life incident where the guy got trapped. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And cut I mean, off I'm his fucked. Arm. Yeah, I'm fucked yeah. no matter what. Of course, like anyone is. But I always I have a camel back and I take food and water and things like that. But just from personal experience, I found that I tend to get scorched. That's my big yeah. failure as a hiker. Yeah. Again, that wouldn't be my worry. <laughs> You're concerned about the mountain lions. Well, I'm concerned about, you know, snakes, mountain lions, broken legs, broken ankles, uh, heat stroke, aneurysms. <laughs> <laughs> so deadly, yeah. deadly threats. Yeah. I did encounter something pretty cool. I hadn't um, seen this on the trail before. There was a sinkhole. Um, it's like a known sinkhole. It's marked and it collapsed in the late 1800s. And uh, it was it was pretty, pretty intense to behold. It was probably about 40 feet deep. There was a, a full grown tree growing up out of it. And just these sheer, you know, uh, the red rocks had just sheared right off. And it was an extremely smooth sort of cliff face. Fascinating to see. But yeah. Anyway, that was my eventful day. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, I'm sure you have some things in mind, but there was something that I particularly wanted to bring to your attention, which is that I just applied or submitted an application or what rather a self-nomination for the Nobel Prize. Yeah, Nobel Prize. Yeah. I'd be like Sartre and decline it. Uh, and then <laughs> write an essay explaining how they suck. But 
uh, there's a movement. It's actually called a movement for a people's party. And it's an incipient third party movement. It's an attempt. Uh, it was founded by uh, what role did he serve? I think he was national director of political outreach or something like that on the Bernie 2016 campaign. And since then, you remember the been, guy's name? Yeah. Nick Brana. Yeah. Yeah. I've met, I've met him through my work with extinction rebellion. Um, and you may have seen him on Twitter or, you know, whatever, he's pretty active on there. Uh, but yeah, that's where I've seen him. Yeah. He's been trying to, uh, you know, start this third party. And at first it was called draft Bernie. And he would, the, the thought was, well, you know, take a look at what happened in 2016. Bernie got altogether screwed by the democratic establishment as he then went on to do again in 2020. And Nick said, Hey, why don't we just peel off and actually start a third party the same way that was done uh, when the last party system, political uh, party system change happened with Abraham Lincoln splitting off from the Whigs to the Republicans. You take a popular charismatic figure, break off and start a new party. If you build it, they will come type thing. So that was the logic as I understand it. Well, of course, Bernie wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and instead he decided to get his ass kicked even worse in 2020 by the democratic establishment. Never before in the history of, uh, American political primaries that I know of did the second, third, fourth, and I think fifth place candidates, no, second, third, and fourth place candidates drop out to endorse the fifth place candidate, Joe Biden, as what is, is what happened right before Super Tuesday in 2020 at the behest, I think, of Barack Obama. Anyway, that's how I see the scenario. And Nick has been attempting to formulate this third party for some time. And it's now to the point where he is issuing a call to run about a dozen candidates in the 2022 midterms. And this is the exact same process that the Justice Democrats undertook, um, which Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a part of and some other you know, upstart progressive politicians in the House except of course they ran within the Democratic Party, but they primaried establishment Democrats under the guise of taking over the Democratic Party from the inside. In my view, and the view of a lot of people who have been watching the Justice Democrats closely, including one of the co-founders of the group, Kyle Kalinske, who's a political commentator online, uh, the Justice Democrats experiment has failed. They have not coordinated and worked as a block, even though there are about six or eight of them in the House now. Um, so they don't vote as a block and they don't threaten to withhold their votes like the Freedom Caucus did on and does, I think, on the Republican side as part of the Tea Party insurgency. Okay, so Movement for a People's Party is attempting to run candidates and they issued a call for nominations and self-nominations. And I said, hey, fuck it. I'll apply. So I submitted myself as a self-nomination uh, in New York, where I'm moving back to. Now, whether I'll be chosen, whether they're planning on running a candidate in New York, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I just wanted to sort of lay the groundwork there for listeners and also get your perspective, if you have any, on third parties in general, which I think we both realize are 
pretty much failures in the United States and this movement in particular. Any, any thoughts or reactions to that? I don't know anything about this particular party. I guess that's not surprising. Would, would you be running for a, a, a congressional seat? So I submitted the, for- Is this for a state assembly? I think they're kind of casting a wide net right now and seeing, you know, how many applicants they get as well as what kind and where, et cetera, et cetera. So I chose, um, I selected U.S. representative level, um, but, you know, I, I'm open to communicating with them about alternatives. But I mean, I want to be philosopher king. So, I, you know, I settle for like philosopher prince, I guess. You have to start somewhere, Rory. Right. Uh so I'm going to start with a story, which I don't think you know. Okay. And this is about how my family uh, is responsible for Abraham Lincoln becoming president. Ah, fantastic. Do you know that story? I don't know if I know this story per se, but, uh, you know, I've been wanting to talk more about your illustrious familial history in American politics. So, right. Well, my great, great uncle was a senator from Kentucky, John Jordan Crittenden, for whom my oldest son is named, Jordan. Uh, and he, let's see if I can get this. He was appointed senator by the governor, I believe this is right, when Henry Clay became secretary of state, maybe. I don't remember what his title was. What title, <laughs> what, what his office was. Something. Uh, yeah, so uh, John Jordan Crittenden becomes the senator from Kentucky. And he was a very prominent political figure in Kentucky, as you can imagine. Uh, this was the time, so this was at 18, when did, when did Lincoln run against Douglas for See. the Senate seat, 1858 oh, or 54, some, 56? Sometime in the 50s, late, mid, late 50s. Yeah, 56 or 58. I can't remember when it was. He's running for the Senate seat in Illinois against the Democrat. He, he's running as a Whig. And he's running uh, against the Democrat, Stephen A. Douglas. Right. Maybe it's not A, Stephen Douglas. I think it's A. I always thought asshole. You know, that was. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Lincoln. Uh, is running as a Republican, but what's occurring within the, uh, sorry, is running as a Whig, but what's occurring in the Whig party is this splinter group arising called the Republicans. And it turns out that my uh, uncle, great, great uncle, John Jordan, was being solicited by Lincoln for his support. And so John Jordan Crittenden writes a letter and he sends the letter to Lincoln. And the letter says something like, <laughs> roughly paraphrasing here, uh, this party is fucked up. The Whigs. The Whigs. Yeah. Um, because uh, you Republicans are screwing things up. The Republicans were an abolitionist party, right? They, they were running on, on abolishing slavery. And uh, so my uncle said, I'm going to throw my support behind the Democrat, Douglas. Now, when this hits the press, this is huge news. 
<laughs> right. And I think you can say that it swung the election to Douglas. Now, how does that get Lincoln elected president? Right. It is for listeners and viewers. It is the Beto O'Rourke phenomenon. When O'Rourke lost the race against Cruz for the Senate in Texas, he had lots of free time and some fair amount of publicity to run for president, which he did. Lincoln, in a similar fashion, had held the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which in many ways, in many ways, captivated the nation. So they, so people were reading these <laughs> lengthy transcripts in newspapers, or at least lengthy accounts, yeah. uh, because the, the debates were you know three hours long. I think Postman uses those as an example of how we are no longer basically a literate society, like yeah. because there was a time when people would read stuff like that. Yes. And no more. <laughs> and would and would attend a, a three, three and a half hour debate. Right. Where people are speaking for a half hour or an hour at a time. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so our attention and span has 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 decreased. I was going to say and watch podcasts like this. <laughs> Listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, right. Like well, we're trying to bring it back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you people, you listeners and viewers should should applaud yourselves because we're bringing you back to a time when people were, according to Neil Postman, literate. <laughs> yes. He calls anyway, it the typographic mind. Sorry. Go ahead. Joe, so the story, that this, is a, this is the end of the story. Because Lincoln lost, he was not then uh, in, in any way limited to what he could say or his appearances. He was not representing the state of Illinois. He was free to take his now burgeoning fame mm -hmm. and tour about the country and give speeches, which is, which is exactly what he did. So my great, great uncle's letter which maybe through the election to Douglas enabled Lincoln to go on his transcontinental uh, or intercontinental <laughs> speaking tour, becoming even more popular and well-known and thereby winning in 1860. Yeah. It basically caused him to fail upward. Failed upward. Exactly. Right. Failing upward. Uh, now this brings us to the third parties because it was soon thereafter after 1858, that the Whigs lost out to the Republicans and Lincoln ran as a Republican. And we thereafter have the Republican Party. Right. So we now come to the People's Party. <laughs> there was a prior People's Party in the 20th century, which was headed up by Anderson, a third party Republican. William Anderson, I can't remember his first name, who ran fairly well. He did not do as well as Ross Perot did, who also ran as an independent, not on his own party, but as an independent, which people say is maybe a, a contributing factor, if not a major factor in Bill Clinton beating George H.W. Bush. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I remember seeing Perot on TV as a kid vaguely, you know, because yeah. he was a character. But yeah, he was uh, a... The, I have gone back and read, you know, the history and he like dropped out and then came back. Just very interesting dynamic there. But I think from what I understand, you're right. He threw the election to Bill Clinton ultimately. Yeah. He took away some significant number of Republicans from, from uh, Bush. I, I don't think that's the sole reason, but it's a pretty good story. Yeah. Anyway, there has been a people's party. Right. Uh, now you may recall, I barely do. 
so you may recall better than I, that it toward the end of What Hath Trump Wrought, my ebook available nowhere. <laughs> Amazon. Oh, Amazon. Basis. That's right. Everywhere. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. Um, I predicted that there would be a splintering of parties. Right. We have seen something. We, we've seen the uh, in, incipient moves toward this. Uh, you may remember that a couple of weeks ago, and maybe a little longer, a hundred Republicans signed a letter saying that they could no longer be part of the Republican Party, and they wanted to break off and start their own party. Yes, there wasn't there a letter also. Oh, I just want to mention this. There was another letter from retired uh, military officers, like supporting Trump or supporting the idea of stop the steal. So I think that just lends evidence. You're talking about never Trumpers, right? I'm uh, presumably. Or the people I, who are opposed to the Trumpian turn. At least, yes. What's, what's happened to the, to the GOP? So right. on the flip side, there's also Trumpsters themselves who are peeling off. So they're both pulling. Okay. It's like being drawn and quartered, you know. Yeah, party. I'm not sure what will happen to the Trumpsters without Trump, but that's a concern that I don't really have. And I'm pretty sure you don't share. No. Uh, yeah, you don't care. Um, Death, hopefully. So the People's Party is going to be a party that will, uh, I would think, peel off progressives who are uh, not enamored of of Bush's, Bush's, Biden's first 100 days. As Might I as know. well be fucking Bush. <laughs> well, I don't think it's quite that bad, but um, I know you you uh, share no love for Joe Biden. So no. you you might very well be a person who would uh, sign on to, to the People's Party, as you have done. Correct. So it does this portend something deeper than just some superficial splinters under the fingers of the major parties. Uh, you know, something on, you get when you're walking on a boardwalk or you're, you, know, you get a little splinter in your finger. Or is this something significant that this is a pointing to the demise of the two major parties? Uh, it would be dramatic for me to say, ah, it could go either way. Uh, no, I don't think it is for the very reason that you pointed out. Right. The history of third parties in this country is a history of frustration and uh, very little accomplishment. I applaud it, however, because I think that uh, a move toward multiple parties creates an opening for all sorts of modifications within our democratic system that I think would be all to the good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, the history of third parties in this country is dismal. Um, it, it seems, at least historically speaking, that they can only arise almost miraculously through a replacement process like you just described. You know, uh, it's just think of how the series of coincidences that had to occur for your great great uncle or whatever, <clears throat> excuse me, to sort of initiate that butterfly effect and the small things that preceded that that led him to do that and then uh, poised. Lincoln for the presidency under a new banner, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I mean, I think it would be impossible for anyone to know if there are circumstances like that churning at a very granular level right now. 
you know, could someone defect, for example, would Bernie on his deathbed endorse the People's Party, you know, or whatever, something that actually. Well, that would kill it. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, Bernie, I mean, his lifetime of service is uh, uh, incredible and amazing and all that kind of stuff. But I've been extremely disappointed in him um, really since the 2020 campaign in particular. Yeah, I think he, he botched it horrifically. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I don't I don't think. Well, first let me say two things. A. In no way do I actually believe that my great great uncle threw the election day for Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it's a story we tell in the family, and it's a pretty good story. Yeah, but it, I mean, a, there's some merit there. There, there is some merit, but I'm not a crazy person. Right. It's not uh, like he was the uni, the the sole factor or something. He was maybe 0.01% or something. Like I said, a butterfly flapping yeah, its wings. Right. Uh, and, and who knows how many votes he actually may have peeled away from, from Lincoln <laughs> to Douglas. I don't know. Uh, but this was written up by a fairly, fairly well-known American historian, particularly one who focuses on the period around the Civil War, whose last name I'm going to botch. If you remember it. Yeah, it's something like Giso, G-U-E-S-L-O, something like that. I'll look it up and I will I will uh, correct this someday. <laughs> next encounter. <laughs> <laughs> no, Footnote. not that not that soon. Yeah, maybe <laughs> next encounter. Uh, and B, I, I don't know. I, I think if you could get, well, here's where I'm headed with B. <laughs> Somebody of Bernie's stature would be significant. So if you had the squad mm-hmm. back uh, the People's Party because they are unhappy with what Biden has done, that he has not fulfilled promises he made that uh, the progressives would like to see enacted. If you had prominent people doing that, that could have some pulling effect. Again, I, I didn't care enough to look into who the, the hundreds uh, Republicans were who, who suggested a new party. I don't know if they're prominent people. I don't know who they are. Mm. But I think that would help because it would garner publicity. And we know that in this culture, everything is about attention grabbing. Yes. Right? I mean, this, 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 is a, let's, this is a country that doesn't deserve to have democracy, maybe in any form, even <laughs> in this pathetic, paltry form we currently have. Right. Be- because our citizenry is, isn't prepared for democracy. Never has yeah. been. Right. The founding fathers took people as, as they found them and said, these are not the people to run the country. They're not sending their best, folks. <laughs> no. But they, they said, we don't want the people really running it was set up so that the as we know the elites the the most prominent as madison called them the men of fit character yes would be elected to office as he also i think madison also writes this elsewhere he calls them the minority of the opulent chomsky references this quote all the time the constitution was designed to protect the minority of the opulent from the majority of the unwashed the poor or whatever well i don't think it was quite that bad yeah, uh, Chomsky may be exaggerating. I don't remember. No, I've it. looked up the quote. That's what he says. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that the quote is wrong. I'm saying oh, okay. he may be exaggerating about what was intended. 
Sure. Because yeah. I, because although states set property qualifications for voting, many of them were incredibly low. It wasn't as if they were saying nobody who isn't opulent mm. can participate. It wasn't like that. I think the expectation was that nobody would vote for people who, who weren't well regarded. Right. And what and and what that meant in 1789, 1790, 1791, whenever the first election was held, after the ratification of the, of the Constitution, uh, what that meant was that the leaders and most prominent citizens behind the revolution were people who were identified and voted in. I mean, it was simple. <laughs> These are the most <laughs> prominent citizens. Right. And they had great reputations and they were voted into office. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's, I guess, the sort of original fame, political fame. Think of George Washington, yeah. the most obvious example. Well, all of them. Right? Yeah. I mean, all of them. Madison, Mason. I mean, all of these people were prominent within their states, which is why they went to the Constitutional Convention and people around them who were satellites around these these glowing planets, these glowing suns. <laughs> that's, uh, the, that's the origin of the Crittenden dynasty as well, correct? I, uh, I did some research. There, You had a prominent uh, ancestor in the Revolutionary War, I, I think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. But. Not, not, I wouldn't say prominent. He was an officer in the, in the Revolutionary Army, was bequeathed, that's the right term, um, a certain amount of land in Kentucky. He was from Virginia and, and was given a certain amount of land in Kentucky. So that creates this, this family of political prominence in Kentucky, but of course not so prominent that my own great grandfather didn't have to move to Missouri to carve out his own political empire. Right. But I mean, I think you- Which by the way, did not surround itself in glory, let me say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, let, and let me let me suggest that that if you by all by all uh, bits of publicity, it looks as if the family succeeded because my great grandfather was governor of Missouri. Mm -hmm. uh, his son was was mayor of Kansas City. I don't think he became governor. He was mayor of Kansas City. Mm -hmm. But here's where it gets it gets dicey. One of the most corrupt regimes in the history of American politics is the Pendergast machine in Missouri, in Kansas City. Uh -huh. My father, my great grandfather, sorry, his son laid the groundwork for the Pendergast machine. <laughs> so your grandfather, you're saying? Not my grandfather, his son. Oh, who, right. So my direct oh, descendant, your my grandfather, great uncle, my great uncle, my grandfather. Okay had a brother uh, who, who lays the ground, lays the groundwork for the Pendergast machine. It was a scoundrel. Uh, it was, yeah. Not as bad as <laughs> Pendergast, but right up there. Anyway, I'm sorry. We got off on my family. Yeah. But yeah. So back, back to the revolution. Right. So, so it's easy to identify prominent members of the, of the new nation, but these are people who had, had served uh, well during the American revolution, who had, supported the revolution, political figures, cultural figures, military figures. Yeah, so they're, they're the ones that people thought, well, this is whom we shall elect to office. 
And these are the people that the founders wanted elected to office. Right. And who coincidentally also <clears throat> had certain economic interests that are preserved, not only in the language of the Constitution, but in that sort of um, tradition, I guess, that gets inaugurated literally with this class of revolutionary figures, right? So that the government, you know, is of, by, and for the people, but it's, it, it becomes almost permanently led by elites, right? I mean, and then you have, the, you have various reactions to this throughout American history, like Andrew Jackson, Trump, you know, but by and right, large, right, right. you know, by and large, it's, it's the hoity-toity, right, that hold the reins. It's hoi polloi, right. So, uh, no, hoi polloi are- No, those are, that would be are, great if it was. Yeah, was, well, some of them. Lincoln yeah. himself, I think, comes from a, a modest background, and though he was a lawyer, he, he was not uh, especially well-established. Certainly wouldn't be somebody you would consider opulent. Sure. But what I was going to mention is that it's much seedier than that, because if you look at the argument that Madison makes in Federalist Number 10, he spends his time, and this is why it's such a famous uh, paper from the Federalist Papers, he spends his time making the argument that this group of fit men of fit character will rise above self-interest. Right. Because as he says, it's impossible to eliminate self-interest. You, uh, you can't eliminate factions. He goes into Federalist 10 about, to some extent about why that's a problem. We have to recognize that fashions, factions exist and will always exist. So what do we do about them? He said, well, you have to have one faction counteract the other faction. Right. And the that's idea the was systemic argument, basically. That's the systemic argument. Yeah. Right. So what you have then would be uh, factions, which consist of people who are who have gathered together out of some interest. Arguing against and militating against some other faction also organized around some interest. Well, when they clash, they begin to see that nobody can get what they want. <laughs> so this is Madison and Federalist 10. They'll rise above the clash right. and they will then serve the common good. And we can't serve our faction. That's pointless. The other side won't, can't serve their faction. You can't get what you want. So what do we do? Well, well let's, let's do what's in the best interest of the country. Well, that quaint idea <laughs> was completely destroyed with the first Congress. Mm. when it was, as, as uh, historians have pointed out, the, it was all about self-interest. I think uh, Rakov talks about this, historian Jack Rakov talks about this. It, the, the first Congress was a free-for-all. <laughs> you know, it's get to the trough and get your face in it. I mean, this right. is what it was about. So this idea that men of fit character were going to be arguing in, in some parliamentarian deliberative way and then realizing through the debate that, oh, we have to rise above the clash of self-interest and, and legislate for the common good. It's, it's ludicrous. It's laughable. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it didn't really, happen. Never as happened. you lay it out there, I mean, this, this is obvious, but it, it, it struck me just as you were describing it, the sort of analogous um, thinking that un, it, that must underlie Madison's sort of like presuppositions about that from capitalism and Adam Smith. It's basically like, you know, the invisible hand as applied to 
government. Like we have yeah. the, everybody's pursuing their narrow self-interest, but magically uh, the common good or the common wealth will arise from that. And, uh, you know, they're like obvious historical, like that's when, and arguably like the American constitution is like, you know, codifying a, a capitalist system for the first time in world history. Not that capitalism didn't exist at all prior to that, but that this is the first like new country whose constitution is founded on, I think, capitalist principles in that way. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know that I, I, I could go as far as that. But do you see the but, connection I'm drawing there with well, the thinking? No, I don't. No? Well, let me tell you why I don't. Sure. It, it, it's almost as if uh, the founders are more cynical than Adam Smith. Adam, Adam yeah. Smith is observing the rise of, of capitalism, uh, which in some ways can be applauded because it operated the way we would like to see it operate, which is people are providing a service or a good that other people want, and they're willing to pay a certain amount of money for it. And so the shopkeeper or the merchant or the manufacturer uh, is earning some money to provide a service or good and people spend their money. And then that merchant or industrial or, or, or manufacturer uses his, his money to buy goods. So that's how the system works. And the reason he calls it the invisible hand is that nobody's intending for the system to work this way. You're just pursuing your self-interest. So nobody has the intention of, of, of generating the common good. It just works out that way. The founders aren't operating according to an invisible hand. Right. They're saying, no, no, these enlightened men will rise above self-interest. We'll recognize self-interest. We'll see how the system is harmed by it and we'll rise above it. So it's more cynical in that the one of two things follows. They knew in advance it wasn't going to work that way, or they thought it was, and they were just naive, thereby rendering our founding fathers, not men of enlightenment and great wisdom, but clowns. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think I would say, I guess maybe I could put it like this. It's like, they, they were certainly less naive than Smith, I think, as you were just explaining. Like they had no expectation that um, without rules and regulations and guidance, the pursuit of political self-interest would produce the common good. That's the whole point, right, of creating the Constitution was to render visible what Smith uh, takes as invisible. So they're laying down, they're saying, look, motherfuckers, you have to do this. You have to do that. It's going to be done this way. We're going to pit you against each other for the express purpose of forcing you to compromise or whatever. But I think to your point, like, and maybe it would have been an impossible task to ask of anyone to sort of carve these, carve a constitution like this at such a, um, you know, a novel moment in history but they failed miserably. What they created was just a homogenous group of assholes who scratch each other's back, right? And, you know, and which has led down the road over time to what we now call the revolving door and regulatory capture, or what George Carlin describes as, you know, it's a big club and you ain't in it. You know, it's just yeah. this small group of people who uh, stab each other in the back and then do favors for each other. Well, okay, so 
two items quickly. I don't think Smith was in any way naive. I think Smith had knew exactly what was happening and where we were headed with a capitalist system. Because remember, yeah. he, he says in The Wealth of Nations, the first thing that happens when businessmen get together is that they try to figure out how to cr- corner the market, and create a monopoly. Right. You're right. That was unfair of me to say that he was yeah. naive. I guess I was just trying to draw that contrast. Yeah. So, he, so he knew he knew that regulations and laws were essential. Where he may have gotten it wrong was what the role of government would be, had to be mm. uh, in, in, market, in the marketplace. The founders, I think they set up exactly the system they wanted because they were honestly trying to create a way to get people to recognize the limitation of self-interest, which Smith never did. He said, this, this right. is the prime directive for humanity going <laughs> forward. But they right. thought that they could transcend it. And so they set up this system where, just as you were saying, Rory, they, they wanted the collision. They wanted the gridlock. They, they wanted things to go slowly, if not freeze. <laughs> it's because it's, it's a massive system built on distrust. Right. 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 It incorporates into it so many sort of negative assumptions about human nature, which may be true assumptions. You know, we could argue that all day. But I mean, this is what I've always found compelling in in your work, especially, I think, in Democracy's Midwife, is how you take a quote, actually, I think from, well, you, you can tell me better than I can remember, probably Madison, where it, it, he sets up that sort of isomorphism between the structure of the government and the character of the citizen. And so, of course, the citizen is going to become what he or she is expected to be if, if within the constraints of the system that he or she's born into. Right. Am I, am I kind of getting that? So your point is like, if you, if you assume people are selfish assholes, you build a system as the founders did predicated upon that assumption, you're going to produce and reproduce selfish assholes who climb their way up that system necessarily. But if, if we tweak the system and reconstruct it informed by different values and assumptions, et cetera, then we can, you know, basically educate civically educate altogether different people with different characters and different values. Yeah. Yeah. So Madison starts with the assumption that this is almost going to sound Leninist, uh, <laughs> that there are people who, who by their reputations must lead and that other people will follow them, right? This is uh, John Stuart Mill's principle of not appropriation, that's not the right word that he uses. It's the, it's the notion that people will naturally follow those whom they think are better than the, than the people themselves, right? You will mm. look up to someone, you recognize that they have greater character, greater history, uh, more knowledge, whatever it's going to be, and you will follow them. Right. You intuitively acknowledge your superior as being the one who should lead, yeah. well, however we construe superior right. in this sense. And, and so that's what the system is built on. And so you, you don't expect uh, the farmer or the baker to be able to articulate principal positions about governing or about uh, diplomacy or the economy, but you expect them to be able to recognize those people who, who can do those things. Right. And you defer to them. I think that's what he calls it, the principle of deferment, something like that. Deference? Deference. I, yeah, I can't deference. remember. Yeah, okay, yeah something nice. like that. Principle of deference something like that. 
Uh, and that's the idea that the system is built on. Now, okay, so you lift up uh, citizens, and Mill, Mill also talks about this, as does as Tocqueville, the Tocqueville when he's looking at, at the United States. Yes. That campaigns and elections become ways of educating the populace, informing them, as the Lincoln-Douglas debate did, mm. about what the important issues are in the country and the ways to argue for and against various positions. And so you're educating, edifying the populace. And, this, and the founding fathers thought the same thing. But because there was such distrust built in, because they knew that they would have to create these, these laws and these rules to enable the citizens to get in the proper channels, they created the Constitution. And a Constitution where one chamber doesn't trust the other chamber, so they're checks and balances. Neither chamber trusts the president, so they're checks and balances. Somebody's got to have, be a governor over both these, so they have the Supreme Court, uh, which has a judicial review. Right. Uh, the state governments don't trust the federal government. And so it's a system built on a recognition for the need for rules and laws, for levels of checks and balances, built on the idea of distrust, yes. fundamental distrust of people. Yeah, go ahead. Or That's it. You, okay. I was going to say, and that, and that it's something that it, I find very frustrating and difficult to overcome in conversation with people because you have to turn on their head, the, what most people take to be the best features of the system. You have to somehow find a way to convince people that those features are in fact, not necessarily bad, but, but certainly flawed. So like the idea of separation of powers, of checks and balances, most people say, oh, that's good. It distributes power, prevents, you know, the consolidation of power on and on and on. But, and, and while that may be true, if we're coming at it from this sort of pessimistic view, or we have this incredible fear of the concentration of power and the way that it can corrupt, which, you know, uh, you would expect people who uh, are, who were, revolting against uh, an overbearing king to have to be paranoid about that right and to <clears throat> build those assumptions into their constitution but as you just pointed out if you look at it from a different perspective that's actually illustrative of fundamental distrust and animosity towards each other towards one another in all kinds of different capacities such that it inhibits our ability to cooperate Right. We want to, in theory, at least for me, like we would want a the maximally cooperative system of government that we could have where there's the maximum amount of trust. Right. Right. And but that's not what we have. But it, it, it as it stands. People take that to be a good thing and convincing them otherwise is very difficult, if not impossible, I think. Well, this takes us back to the last encounter. We have enshrined the founders in the myth of <clears throat> almost infallibility. Yeah. But the, these are, are men of, of great character, the highest character, <clears throat> the greatest wisdom. And look how wise they are. They created this document called the Constitution. And for generations and centuries, people have sworn allegiance to it, will <laughs> die for it. 
Uh, and so how could the document be wrong? Well, it's wrong in all kinds of ways. And you've just pointed out a couple. Right. Uh, that, that it is, is it the way you want to run a country and a country that's this large and this diverse? I, I cannot imagine that it is. No, it, it's, it's madness to think that it is. Uh, you know, basically the constitution was created by slave-owning tax evaders. How, you know, how is that, how is that how we want to organize our political system at this point, 200 some years later? Of course, all the, you know, additional features we can say white men, basically white, rich white men, slave owners, many of them, if not most of them, and all of them tax evaders. Now I'm no fan of paying taxes, but. So, so why, why do you call them tax evaders? Well, I, I guess it's just kind of a cheeky way of thinking about the like Boston Tea Party, et cetera. Like they were revolting against the crown in significant part because they felt that they didn't have adequate representation and therefore ta the taxation that they were being subjected to was unjust and illegitimate, right? So they wanted to keep more money for themselves. Yeah, of course that was pre-revolution. Right, and, but, but as but we pointed out, most of the revolutionary figures were the framers also. Right. Right. But the, uh, the reason I would push back on that is that one of the major stimuli, one of the major stimuli for creating the Constitution in the first place was to overcome the flaws of the Articles of Confederation. One of those was that states couldn't collect taxes. The, the, I mean, states might collect taxes, but the federal government couldn't collect taxes. Sure. And so they couldn't do anything. They had no power. They absolutely hadn't because they had no resources. So one of the ideas of the Constitution was ways of allowing the federal government to actually grow, to have some wherewithal, economic wherewithal to actually do things. Yes, right? so I guess I'm talking about two different arenas here. Like I agree completely with what you with what you're saying, but I'm saying that sort of revolutionary impulse to break away from the crown in the first place was in significant part influenced by the desire. I, I think you could argue it's this rising mercantile class, you know, which came into existence as a result of uh, the British Empire's mercantilism, right? Through in, in the, the hell is it called? The triangle between Britain, the Caribbean, and the United States. At any rate, uh, the... So this mercantile class is ascendant and they don't want to be taxed anymore. They want to be the ones who tax, right? And when they failed to create a system that could do that under the articles, as you're saying, they turned around and, and made themselves even stronger, centralized their own power and taxation powers even more. Sure. That's just one. That's my reading anyway. Yeah. I, well, I think there's merit there. Yes. To say, but it wasn't to say they were tax evaders. I mean, they may well have been. They may have said, I'll pay a tax up to a certain limit, but that's it. Right. But they recognize the, the importance of having some kind of treasury for the federal government that could then do things such as send ambassadors to countries and exercise diplomacy, which the articles made, made very difficult to do. Yes, uh, I did find that very interesting. I just remembered you wrote a little bit about the shortcomings of the articles and what hath Trump brought, right? And how that sort of... Um, actually creates a precedent for reconstitution. Right. Yeah, which I, right. I found really compelling. Of course, no one 
uh, in the general population could even spell Articles of Confederation, let alone know know anything about it. But it's a good philosophical argument. Right. Nor could they spell reconstitution. True. Um, but you'll notice, okay, so we talked started by talking about splintering parties, the, the possibility, as I predicted, I predicted there would be six parties. Yes. Uh, and that's <laughs> optimistic might be one way of looking at it. Delusional might be another way of looking at it. But, but I just couldn't see that the center could, could hold any longer either the Republican center or the Democratic center. So can we lay that, if I'm recalling, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's sort of the typology. You basically yeah. say the two parties, each of them will have sort of a, a left and right variant of themselves and also maintain their center, right? That will be the splintering process. Right, yeah. right. Now, there's, so there's a po the possibilities are these. You could have two center parties, the the traditional Republican neoconservative center party and the traditional neoliberal corporatist center democratic party. Uh, those may not, those may also not hold. And so you would then have the centrists from both parties combining into one central party. I don't think that's, I don't think that's likely I think still think there's too much separating Democrats and Republicans, even if they're mm. neoliberal, neoconservative corporate shills. I still think there's too much there. <laughs> there is some crossover, though, right, with like Lincoln Plenty. Project types, right? You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, well, hang on. So you have these <laughs> never Trumpers like George Will and Jennifer Rubin, uh, Max Boot, mm -hmm. uh, all of the uh, Bill Crystal, these these intellectuals who abandoned ship when Trump took over the Republican Party. Yeah. The reason that they have this broad appeal is first, they're anti-Trump, but second, they are talking about things that have now spilled over from Trump into the Republican Party, right? It's, this, is, this is the party of insurrection. Yeah. This is the, the anti-democratic, anti-immigrant, uh, pro-racist party. That's what it's become. Yes. And in fact, I just saw today, there's a new poll 53% of Republicans believe that Trump is still president, or like should be president, legitimately is president. And I think 66% believe that the election was stolen from him. That's today. I don't understand the 13%. I don't, I guess <laughs> how, it's- <laughs> How can you think Trump should be president, but the election wasn't stolen? I guess it's that small number of Republicans who are willing to accept that, like, someone is a better thief than them. You know, it's like, well, he's the election was stolen, but I, you know, he got he stole it fair and square. So he stole it so well, I can't even see where it was stolen. I yeah. just know that it's missing. Right. <laughs> it's I don't get it either, but it, I mean, yeah. it's a sub rational belief anyway. Yeah. So. It's, it's just, just crazy. It wouldn't be. 66 66 but okay um, yeah so i'm not sure what's going to happen in the center but let's imagine that there's a traditional neoconservative center democrat a republican party and a neoliberal corporatist center democratic party okay off of those i imagine a bernie sanders people's party uh such as you you're imagining which would be progressive populist leaning toward uh, 
socialist socialist platform. Yeah, okay. I, then I think in that's accurate. In between would be what I called the Elizabeth Warren Reform Party. Right. right. This is somewhat progressive, but understanding that certain structures will remain, such as the, the capitalist system. It will be well regulated, but I can't imagine that leads to then being well controlled. I don't think that can be, but uh, okay. But so there are plenty of progressive elements there, plenty of thoughtful elements there, be policy driven. And I think have the best interests in all of the, all of Americans. And it would be enacting all the things that we think if you're progressive are, are important elements the, the green new deal, uh, the universal basic income, Medicare for all, all the things we'd like to see. Okay. Right. On the, but that, but that's it. When you begin moving toward, you can move to the center, but there's not going to be any movement to the right of that center. That's far enough right as it is. For Republicans, ex-Republicans, erstwhile Republicans, uh, they would be building on that center and then moving right. right? So yeah. then you're going to get uh, from from there, what did I have? So I have the, the far right, the neo-fascist Trump party. Right. And then slightly closer to the center, not as far right as that. What did I have? Was that the neoconservative party? I don't remember. I've got a party in, the, in between there. In between I can the bring center. Up my notes while you're talking, but just yeah. keep going. Yeah. In between the traditional uh, Republican Party and the, and the far right neo-fascist party i had something which i can't recall some kind of party maybe that was the neoconservative maybe that was a traditional neoconservative party probably an attempt to to go back basically to the george w bush style yeah not the george hw bush style but the george w bush style the idea of projecting right. american power into the world at whatever cost uh in the way of being forceful colonialists uh that kind of idea Right. Anyway, um, could that happen? Well, as, as we pointed out, we've got the People's Party popping up now. Uh, the, the problem with that, as you know, <laughs> is that some progressives are sort of caught in the middle because on the one hand, they applaud Biden for what he's done with COVID, for at least pitching a pretty rich infrastructure bill, which he's now abandoned. Basically, it hasn't not abandoned, in the budget, <laughs> but but has has rounded off, unfortunately. Yeah. But he hasn't done anything with the student loan. He hasn't really done anything with minimum wage. He hasn't done anything with welfare for all. Uh, I don't know what else you find disgruntled. You can fill me in. Well, there were. I mean, some of them I laid out in that screed right about about Biden's hundred days that I wrote which is on my Substack for people listening. Um, but even, even small things he has, he has bailed on. And, you know, I, I forget who was talking about this, some commentator who I watch or listen to online, although it's not, uh, I think it was Brianna Joy Gray, who was, I think, social media director for Bernie's campaign or something like that, high-ranking position in Bernie's. Uh, 2020 campaign press secretary. Uh, if you're not familiar with her, 
uh, you should follow her work. She writes for Current Affairs uh, and does a few other things. Anyway, she pointed out, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that um, the, the small things that Biden had campaigned for, which themselves were already more conservative than the small things Hillary Clinton had campaigned for in 2016, Biden is now bailing on. So for example, Clinton in 2016 campaigned on lowering Medicare eligibility to 55. Biden campaigned on lowering it to 60. He's now dropped that. I mean, he hasn't done anything for it. He hasn't submitted any kind of uh, language in you know the big budget bill that's going through now. So there's, there's no expectation that he's going to do anything for it. And there were a few other examples that she gave that I can't, can't remember off the top of my head. But I also remember uh, during the primary when Bernie had just dropped out and endorsed Biden, they held a one-on-one and Bernie basically was, this was supposed to be the big moment when Bernie extracts concessions from Biden. How you extract concessions after already endorsing, dropping out and endorsing your opponent is beyond me. But he was saying, you know, oh, you know, Joe, uh, you'll, you'll support a $15 minimum wage, right? And Biden's like, yes, absolutely. I'll make it a top priority. I'll push for it, et cetera, et cetera. He did nothing. He could have easily, the only reason $15 minimum wage didn't go through this last time around was because some fuckhead, the Senate parliamentarian or something said, oh no, it says here on, you know, rule 123C subsection E, you know, that we can't do that this way. So Sorry. Can't do it through reconciliation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's just bogus. Uh, well, just I, one one small point to his credit, sure. Biden did sign an executive order raising the minimum wage of federal workers to fifteen dollars an hour. Yes, that's correct. You're right, and that and that's that's good. That bears that bears mentioning. And Wait, remember, remember, he's a politician. Yeah. Now I know. He, here here is what I thought was going to happen. I thought he was going to to govern bearing in mind that he was going to be a one-term president. Yeah. That he said go- that out loud at the beginning, I thought. Yeah. 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 I'm not and, so sure that's happening, but he's going to be 82. I know. So the thought was, well, I thought was that the, and he started off fulfilling what I thought was going to be this position because it was pretty impressive start. Yeah. With the what he did with COVID, and then this, the infrastructure bill, uh, there was talk about. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, dismiss fifty thousand dollars student mm-hmm. loans. It's going to be fifteen or twenty five or whatever, whatever it was he was talking about. Which there yeah, were, was, was ludicrous. St- there was still some chatter. Right. Okay. Now the concern, I, the concern I have is it's not as sharp as yours. My concern is that those little things will fall away because the thought is that for the electorate, I do the big items, right? People's lives are better. 2022 and 2024, things are looking pretty good for the economy and for people and they're feeling pretty good and they like what they see. Mm. Now, if he's running again, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. And so now that, that I find that depressing right? because my hope would be, of course, this is crazy to, for, for anyone to think the Democrats would do this sort of thing, <laughs> that toward the end of his first term, he would just bow out and 
and move Kamala Harris in there for right. a year, six months to a year. So the people could become accustomed to having not just a woman, but a woman of color as president. Yeah, but Laughable. he'll never, yeah, no, he would never do that. So. I also, if you just look at his person, his personal history, the dude's been running for president since like 1986 or some shit. Was there even election? 84, 88 maybe. And his first time around, he- He's he thrown out dates. One of those fucking 80s. It was 84. <laughs> but, uh I don't think he ran in 84, but he may have. I'm pretty sure he ran in the 80s. It must have been 88. It could have been 88. Uh, but regardless, he his first camp presidential campaign flamed out because he got caught lying and plagiarizing. He right. lied about his Neil record. Kinnock. What's that? Neil Kinnock. Oh, the uh, European politician that he, he plagiarized was, from, right? Yeah. Neil Kinnock was the, the uh, labor candidate in the UK. <laughs> Right. And uh, known as the, I think he was known as the Welsh gas bag, uh, <laughs> but like Biden was loquacious to a fault. And uh, yeah, Biden plagiarized some of his speeches. He get, and he gets caught and then he lies. He's like, says he finished, you know, 10th in his class in law school or something. That's not exactly what he said, but he, he, he exaggerated how he finished in law school. Um, which like, I don't give a shit, but it just speaks to, this guy desperately has wanted to be president and has been willing to lie and cheat and sneak and whatever for 30, 40, 50 years, his whole career to make it to this point. There's no way in hell he's going to, the only way he'll leave the white house or leave the office of the presidency is when his term expires or in a body bag, you know, which is the latter is probably more likely. <laughs> well, I give him more credit than that. I do. I, I, I worry what happens when when people are in positions of, of great power. Mm. As you know, we, we you and I have talked about this on the podcast and, and at other times, that it is by its nature a corrosive right. position. Uh, but Biden has people chirping in his ear. I mean, Lee, if you look at what he's been proposing, it is not it's not Biden-esque. Mm. Uh, he is does seem concerned about climate change. He did he did put in their free community college. Uh, there little there there are little things that he's dropped, but little things that he's done. So I think he's got people chirping. Yeah, Jill Biden is one. His he seems very close to his family. I think they're chirping. He seems he has appointed some pretty good people. A lot of Elizabeth Warren's people are in positions of influence within the federal government. Yes, uh, and he's got some good good progressive people on his economic council and in the white house. So I think he's hearing uh, what I think you and I would agree are important policy positions. I think he's hearing those. So I'm still holding out hope, but it brings us back to how absolutely Byzantine this system is mm. for getting anything done. I mean, it, it, it makes parliamentary systems look way better yeah yes way better because this this is a dysfunctional system and and i i'm convinced that the founders wanted gridlock at the, at the most charitable they wanted things to move as slowly as possible and that's what what happened but now we're at a position where nothing moves right right yeah, I agree. I mean, it's clear in the design as well as in much of the language of the Federalist Papers and other 
you know, historical sources that it was intentional to create this adversarial system, basically. I mean, in the same way that our judiciary is adversarial instead yeah. of what's it called? What's the other system from Europe that they use that's more about fact finding uh, rather than pitting two sides against each other? I'm blanking. Reasonable, yeah. intelligent. <laughs> Yeah, I just know that in, I think in Louis, the state of Louisiana, they have this type of system, legal system, because of the French influence there. Whereas the rest of the country and obviously the federal judiciary operates on this incredibly adversarial system. Yeah, but the adversarial system exists. Uh, you want, I, I think we want to look at what the, the outcome is of the adversarial system, and the outcome is punishment. Right either punishment to be inflicted or punishment to be avoided. Right. And so the better mouthpiece you have or the better argument you have or case you have or one hopes evidence, you can avoid punishment for things that you aren't responsible for. But if you are responsible for those things, we seem to, because remember, I don't know when it occurred, when we had the three strikes, you're out, when we are eliminating judges having any, any, uh, flexibility in sentencing we seem to want to extract maximum penalties and punishments for people yes completely antithetical to the idea of restorative justice or or any justice honestly well justice what what's the point of it it's is it is it to restore what people have lost I, I, yes, I think that should be the object. Well, yes, but it can't be done because you took someone's life. And what do you do about that? Okay, let's think about that. Let's right. get the parties involved. Have everybody talk about what would be a restitution. <laughs> yeah, it, I completely agree. I would love to see. I mean, I think making the judicial system restore based on principles of restorative justice would be like a transformative change if that were the case. Yeah, but well, I, just as it would be transformative if we created a democratic system that was deliberative. Yeah, we oh. pretend that the Senate is the deliberative body. When did that arise? Right, the most maybe elitist institution in the country. Yeah, that was maybe the intention, but it's a debating society. Debates right. aren't deliberative. No. They're debates because they, like the adversarial system in the courtroom, are simply trying to get one up on someone else. That's the idea. Right. They're, again, pursuing their own narrow self-interest in it, and it's uh, exacerbated by the funneling of people or sorting of people into two uh, oppositional camps, right? The political parties that we have now, Republicans and Democrats. It's like this simplifies things such that you have a coalition of interests on one side pitted against a coalition of interests on the other, and they're just trying to get one over on each other. However, yeah. that can yeah. be done, you know, but the, the, and the bizarre part about that is that it's impossible to try to represent different perspectives, different forms of self-interest, different factions, if you will, within these two parties, right. which are themselves almost sclerotic in their in their inability to get things done. But this brings us back to where we started. Mm. <laughs> I think people recognizing that that progressives can't move the centrist Democrats. No. And the lunatic, although we've seen the lunatics, uh, the, the Trumpists, the neo-fascists have been able to move the GOP. 
They've taken it over. They've taken right? it over. That's what happened at the 2016 GOP convention. Uh, I don't know if you watched that. I watched that live. It was insane to well, watch the nomination of Trump. There was resistance and then capitulation. Yeah, the adulation of Trump, yeah. the apotheosis of Trump. Well, for me, the, the, the end point, the telling point was the 2020 Republican platform which was no platform at all. The platform was one line, whatever Trump wants. Right. Seriously, that was pretty much it. Whatever Trump wants, we'll, we'll do whatever Trump wants. But yeah, I think it, this, this, this moment is, is you, uh, well, I can't, I think it depends on what Biden does in the next year. If the House is lost, the Senate is lost, I honestly think you'll see movement from the left within the Democratic Party mm. towards something like the People's Party. You think that party. The, the Democrat Party itself will move left or their no. constituency will abandon them the, and yes. seek out left alternatives? Yes, that's what I think will happen. Yeah. Because the, I think just as you're expressing, many on the left are feeling betrayed uh, and, or certainly abandoned. Yes. Uh, and that simply isn't this. We're not getting this done. We can't have a a, a progressive party that is beholden to cinema and mansion. You can't have two people like that holding up these policies. This right. is crazy. And then we have to, you know, they, yeah, holding hostage really is what it is. And then it's a negotiation with these people who should not even be in the party if that's how they act and what they think and what they believe. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, so it, it's like you're negotiating even to set the agenda for the Democratic Party. You already have to negotiate with folks who might as well be Republicans. They're 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 uh, what's the term? Rhino, except Rhino. they're not <laughs> Republicans in name only. I guess they're Democrats in name only. They're, I know. You know. Yeah. Rhino and so, Dino. Rhino and Dino. Wow. Well, he, here's my hope. This is how. This is where you and I separate and how naive I continue to be. <laughs> I don't know. My view is that Joe Manchin is so wedded to his power as, as pedestrian as it might be, that he's playing the following game. For the sake of my constituents in West Virginia, I'm going to pretend that I'm bending over backwards as it appears he is actually doing mm. to placate these Republicans. Oh, please come negotiate. Please let's be bipartisan. Please right. help us on this bill. Understanding full well that none of that is going to happen. So then he can go back to his constituency in West Virginia and say, look, I really tried to be bipartisan with these people, but they weren't helping us get things done for you people in West Virginia. So see, I'm bipartisan. <laughs> I want to work with Republicans. They won't work. So we had to do these things. That's my hope. That's your charitable reading of Manchin, basically. I don't know that I can read Manchin that way. I'm just <laughs> trying to get behind the scenes of what's going on. Because if he is with cinema, I don't know what the hell she's doing. I can't imagine that she's going to be reelected. I, she I can she I, can only be have sold out. There's got to be some paycheck for her somewhere, somehow behind the scenes or otherwise, because I think as we talked about briefly before, back in the day, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, she was a green 
she was a member of the Green Party. So either she was a liar back then, and she's been a liar all along, or at some point she became, you know, uh, corrupted. Well, I think she's just reading the the scenarios. I think she started as green because she really believed it, saw that that wasn't getting sufficient traction, moved a little bit toward the center, became a progressive, saw that that could have some influence, you know, she elected to the House, okay, then realized if we're running for the Senate, I can't be this left, I began moving in a little bit, and now this is where she is. I think she she thinks, well, Arizona is not really a, even a purple state, it's still pretty red. So mm. I'm going to have to be a little more conservative. But so you think I, she's really still rationalizing? See, I think she's self-consciously sold out yeah. and knows exactly what she's doing. Sounds like you're saying she's sort of rationalized over a period of time to where she probably thinks she's doing the best that she can realistically do given the circumstances. Yes, I think she's trying to play a political game. I think she's going to lose it. Yeah, I think she I, I think she has misread her constituents. I think uh, she will be primaried from both the left and more to the center and Democrats. Mm. Uh, I don't even know that she won a primary. <laughs> That'd be nice to see. Um, yeah. So so two topics have, have come to mind. One is connected to what we're talking about. OK. Uh, the other is out there. Um <laughs> But we've threatened our audience with with the topic, so maybe we won't be able to get to it again, once again. <laughs> this once again, kicking it down the road. <laughs> yeah, kicking it down the road. But what I wanted to mention was this uh, movement. Uh, it's not a movement. That's too strong. This development that occurred last week, mm. uh, which is connected to the conversation we're having now, where some people have just simply gotten fed up with the system. Mm. Uh, no, that's not right. People have gotten fed up with part of the composition of the system, part of the part of the structure. This, some of it is wobbly for uh, for these folks. And so they decided to create the greater Idaho. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. There the separatist were, movement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a secessionist movement. There were votes taken in uh, eastern counties in Oregon. And I think in a part of Northern California, although I'm because that the, the that county or those counties in California weren't really mentioned. I don't know if this is wishful thinking or this has actually happened, but they've taken votes in counties in in eastern Oregon, which is, uh, as you may know, rural and very conservative. Yeah. And they want to join with Idaho and become what they're calling greater Idaho. Uh, and the map goes down into part of Northern California. I think there may also be the counties in California may go all the way over to the coast. I'm not clear about that. Uh, now, this makes perfect sense to me because in the What Hath Trump Wrought ebook available now on Amazon <laughs> for five dollars. <laughs> I think it's like two ninety nine, actually, <laughs> or maybe it's gone up because the demand has been so high. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, so, but in in the book, I mentioned secessionist movements, right? Uh, where you would see states within the country holding together based upon their mutual interests. We saw a little bit of this 
during the pandemic when the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, and California joined together, the governors joined together to do some kind of cooperative uh, distribution of, of, of uh, services or goods, masks or ventilators, I don't know what it was, Right. Uh, medications, they were doing something together. And this happened somewhere else in the country as well, among some other blue blue governors, but I think it included Maryland, which has a, uh, a Republican governor. They were joined together. And I thought, oh, this, this is, in, I don't want to call it a prelude, but, but it is a, a glimpse, a presentiment of, of possibilities. So now you have this movement wrong among Republicans, conservatives, mm. trying to create a greater Idaho which is not quite a secessionist movement because you're not pulling Idaho out of the United States. You're just creating a greater state, which would give you a larger population, which therefore would give you uh, more representation in the House. Of course, it wouldn't alter in any way your, your Senate representation, which seems bizarre to me, unless they create greater Idaho as a new state and Idaho as a regular state. I can't see that actually going through. But I mentioned secession because it appears to be a logical outcome when you have two parties as divided as Republicans and Democrats. And you think to yourself, how on earth do you cross the divide? Right. What, what programs or policies could you, you present that would have both sides saying, yes, yes, let's do this. This is a good idea. They're, they're too diametrically opposed and, and their identities, I think I would argue, certainly from the Republican or conservative side, are sort of dependent upon permanent and kind of vicious opposition to one another. So it's like they're, it's a mistake to even think that, that cooperation is possible because the system now... Uh, has created it's become so polarized that that they must be at each other's throats that's sort of the nature of the of the case and i mean it's that's not historically anomalous right the, that we already had one civil war as a as a result of this type of polarization right. but that that was this is what i mean maybe we can talk about this a little bit too i i can't remember exactly what you say in the book but I have some of my own thoughts about this. Like if, so you just described uh, this greater Idaho thing that's based on, you know, geography, right? But I don't know. And maybe, maybe they well, have articulated this, it, what it, their it, issues are that unite them or bind them. My point is just this. I don't see one single neat, clean issue like slavery to divide geographically the country. I believe, as I think you do, that we're right now we're on a on a collision course for this type of thing, like this regionalization, balkanization. Whether it's successful or not, more efforts like this are going to come down the pike. I think. But what is it going to actually look like? Is it going to be? Right. What's it going to be based on? In the absence of some single issue like slavery. Now, could it be an ascendant Trump, you know, has a Reichstag moment and there's well, he, a... He, he did. Well, another one, I guess. Yeah, he, he, right. He, you're right. He did. He did. You're right. And that's something that 
and the fact that I just papered over it just speaks to the insanity that it that it didn't serve this function already, right? Right. Of galvanizing people against well, this obvious neo-fascist insurgency. You see, I I think I think there is an issue. There is a slavery issue, okay. and it and it's democracy. Mm. I think you can you can look at those states that are trying to implement uh, new restrictions on voting, or adhere to um, extreme gerrymandering, mm. or just look at the states that have now decided to cut off aid to people, money to people that they deserve because they think that the pandemic is over and the economy is booming. Right. Meanwhile, the aid that has been offered by this country compared to all other developed yeah. countries has been nothing. Yeah, it's been sad. But but I think that's a dividing line. So I think you could look at the states that are anti that are instituting anti-democratic uh, rules or laws and look at those that are trying to reinforce democracy or fall democracy. Mm. Now, the problem is the reason I mentioned the counties in Oregon is that you would think that Oregon, Washington, California would be their own kind of ecotopia, right? They would right. have their own views about what, what values they share. But that isn't true because you have these counties that are rural and conservative. This is the problem with secession. Right. You know, if, if the South has seceded, you were leaving 4 million enslaved people to the total command of their masters. If you if secession occurs and California, Washington and Oregon split off, those rural counties are going to feel as if they've been abandoned. So maybe they would go with a greater Idaho. Mm. But you're also going to leave. This is why in the in the book, I I have the map of, of votes by county mm. where you can see that there are blue enclaves in every state. But three, I think, or maybe it's two, just as you can see that there are red enclaves in every state, but two, I think Hawaii and Massachusetts, and maybe one more don't have any red enclaves. Mm. But in other words, if you secede, you are trapping people in these new configurations. A federal government that oversees the whole country tries to legislate some law that will protect people. Now we're we're about to see Roe v. Wade come before the court, and that may be, may overturn. Uh, I can't remember what the it's the 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 court case from Mississippi. I don't remember the name. I just yeah. knew it was coming up eventually here. Yeah. So this could overturn uh, is a direct could be a direct assault on Roe v. Wade. Now. This means that the protections offered, the constitutional protections for women seeking abortion would be removed. Now, state by state, I, I don't know that they would mess with that. Mm. Um, but this is, so this is uh, where we are. I think there is a dividing here and maybe it, and it is democracy. So if you can say to your constituents in rural counties in, in Washington, <laughs> the state of Washington, that democracy is in play here and democracy is under threat, by this Republican Party, maybe that's sufficient to get them to come along. Mm. I think I agree with you that that is or should be a galvanizing issue, much as slavery was. 
However, I don't, I, and maybe you're not optimistic about this, but I don't share your optimism that it will actually serve that function. I think it's a too amorphous. I think people are too um, disillusioned with the government in general to even really care. And I think also there are, I mean, maybe this is cynical, but there are just, it's almost too late. There are too many people who, I mean, like I was saying earlier, 53 fucking percent of Republicans think that Trump is still president. This goes back to the epistemic divide that we were talking about before. I mean, this is tens of millions of people distributed all throughout the country who are lunatics, uh, who are like clinically insane. Uh, you know, and I don't, I just don't see a path. You know, I think, I think there is a path. We again, we talked about this in one of the earlier encounters. The path is that you do what Biden is doing. He's mm-hmm. making the right sounds, and I think he's making some good moves. <laughs> the right sound is, I don't care where you live in the country. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what sex you are. I'm going to do this for all the American people. Okay, that's the right unifi- unifying message. Yeah. And he delivered on that for the pandemic, maybe not as extensively as, as we wanted, as you pointed out in your rant, $1,400 <laughs> is not $2,000 and that $600 can make a big difference. Yes. And in, moreover, it should have been $2,000 a month, at least retroactive yeah. to the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, I agree. UBI, you know. But. Yeah, there, there should, yeah, there's a lot that could have been done. If the infrastructure bill goes through, and I think it will through reconciliation, uh, then Biden, and, and then I think Biden will be again distributing uh, to the people things that they need. Mm. Uh, so I think people could say, yes, government can do things, and you can take that message into the hinterland yeah. and say to them, look, government can do things. When you when you were battling, when your family was battling COVID, what happened? When when your coal mine was closed down. When your factory moved overseas, what happened? You were abandoned. But now look, we're trying to create a a, a green infrastructure. We're trying to create a new uh, electric grid. We're trying to to rebuild our infrastructure. All that's job related. I I think it could happen. Mm. Because I think Biden recognizes, this is the one thing I think he recognizes. We're at a moment of great decision here. Either we demonstrate to people the government can work effectively for them and that there is a role for them to play as citizens in that government, in this democracy, or nothing gets done. McConnell is true to his word. Nothing Biden proposes will be passed. You know, he's 100 percent against everything Biden wants to do. Just as it was under Obama. Just as it was, as it was under Obama. Uh, and we're getting no no help from some of the centrist Democrats, uh, then the country may be ready for something much more dramatic. Right. That's where we come in. <laughs> That's where you come in? Who are we? <laughs> A left, left alternatives, right? That we okay. were talking about earlier. Yeah, like the People's Party. Sure. But you're playing, the, here, here's the problem with the People's Party. Right? <laughs> there are many. Well, what you want to do is what appears on the surface to be a noble action. 
let's burrow from within. This was the how the Fabian Society originated, right? In England, they based they called themselves the Fabian Society based upon the general of Fabian, not the singer. <laughs> that's Fabio, you... right? <laughs> that's Fabio. Wait, no, that's <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't believe it's not Butter Guy. Uh, but they decide they would they would bring their socialism uh, burrow into the uh, Labour Party, whatever it was called then, and infiltrate from within and change the party. So that's what the People's Party is going to do. It's going to infiltrate the democratic system. Maybe right. not, the de- not the Democratic Party, but the Democratic system. But you're still operating within this system, which we have just described as deeply <laughs> flawed from the outset. Right. It's right. rotten to the core. It's rotten to the core. Okay. So your, your, as we discussed last encounter, your dramatic position is to try to foment revolution. Mm. Understanding that you won't by force be able to topple the system, but you will be able to subvert it in various ways. Okay. What I'm looking at, if, if what I said is correct, and it seems to me just right now in the conversation with you, it is, <laughs> of that the issue of slavery is replicated today in the issue of democracy. Mm. One party has not just abandoned democracy, but is openly hostile to it. They, they want power and they want to remain in power and they don't care how that happens. That seems to be the the GOP's operating manual. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a neo-fascist authoritarian yeah. movement. And it appears pr- pretty clear that's exactly what it is. On the other hand, the Democrats want some form of democracy. Unfortunately, they want it to look the way a democracy looks today, by and large, which we know is controlled by moneyed interests Uh the military industrial complex, the military industrial, maybe intellectual complex. Mm. Okay. So my hope isn't for the Varato revolution. (laughs) It's for some form of pro-democracy secession. Right. What's great, I think, is that we have a case of political and antiodromia. <laughs> yes. Now, for those of our listeners and viewers who don't know what an antiodromia is, it's a concept I learned from a Carl Jung. Uh, and I don't know that it originated with him, it may very well have. But what it means is that you become the very thing that you oppose or you hate. Right. So in trying to operate against the system, Rory would be, through the People's Party, Rory would be co-opted by that very system and, in fact, become the embodiment of that system. You become the very thing that you oppose or you hate. Right. It's Heraclitian, right? It's uh, the way up is the way down. I think that's some of the historical roots that Jung identifies. Maybe. I don't know about that. But point being, yeah. Heraclitus was a punk, as far as I could tell. What? I like I don't know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Poor Heraclitus. Um, when he hears about this, Jack. <laughs> yeah, he's coming after me. But, coming out of the grave. Uh, yes. But the antiodromia in this context comes from the remaining Koch brother. Who's that? Charles? See uh, the one who's left? One of probably. Them. Well, one of the brothers is dead. They, if, if you don't know about the history of the Koch brothers... Uh, and their political action. They are a loathsome reptilian form of life that 
uh, attempt to undermine anything that would interfere with their making money. Right. So they uh, have launched uh, programs on college campuses to bolster uh, ultra conservative capitalist values. Um, they have been behind ALEC, that program mm -hmm. of creating legislation that Republicans <laughs> in state legislatures ad 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 adopt and just pass through their houses. It, right. They, this group just drafts it wholesale and then yeah. hands it to them and says, oh, here you go. This would be a good idea. And then they say, mm, yeah, okay. Yeah. And Thanks then for the donation, enacted. by the way. Yeah. And then it's enacted because one thing we know about uh, Republicans uh, is that they are happy to fall in line because they are a, a unity party. Right. Which and Democrats I would argue authoritarian. That's and authoritarian. The, yeah. That's and authoritarian. the basis for yeah, Follow the leader. I, right. I just wrote an article of Medium called Follow the Leader. Oh, nice. I um, so, the, the, but the enantiodromia is that the, the Koch brothers and now the single Koch brother have been pushing for years the idea of creating a new constitutional convention for the, with the sole purpose of passing uh, amendments that would lower taxes or eliminate taxes, do crazy things with taxes, right? They want right. a balanced budget amendment or some crazy shit. They have gotten relatively close. I think they only need six more states to have a constitutional convention. There is a mandate within the constitution that, that specifies when so many states uh, call for a constitutional convention, one must be held. It's two thirds, right? I don't, I don't know that it's two thirds. I, it's 38 or 36. 37, I think. Yeah, I, you wrote number. about it in What Hath Trump Brought, right? Yeah, I do I know where you're so, going with this. It's a good point. Yeah, so it's in there. Okay, well, <laughs> the reason that I think it becomes an, a form of an antiodromia <laughs> is that the Koch brothers are wishing for this convention to occur. Once you call a, constitu a constitutional convention, there are no rules for running it. Right. All it doesn't mean off. it's going to turn out the way they want it to. Absolutely not. In fact, you could start by saying not only will we have no new amendments to the Constitution, which is what Koch wants. Right. We're going to abandon the Constitution itself. Right. We're going to start from scratch right now, buddy. Yeah. We're starting from scratch, just the way that uh, we did with the Articles of Confederation. This Constitutional Convention is going to create a new Constitution. So when the Constitution began, Edmund Randolph, who comes to the Constitutional Convention in 1787, has what's called the Virginia plan. He had a plan worked out. Here's what we're going to do. And uh, it was tinkered with, right? It was voted. Then there was a New Jersey plan and there were other plans at the convention before we got to what we now have as our, our constitution. Right. So my expectation is you have a constitutional convention. The blue states get together and they say, here's our new constitution. You want to sign on as a state? Sign on. You don't? Fine. You're not beholden to it and we're not beholden to you. The old, the old constitution is null, it's gone. Wouldn't that be beautiful <laughs> if, that, if that actually came to pass? I would love to see that blow up in their faces and also just the, the openness that that would create for transformative systemic change one way or another. Yeah. It would be you know, unprecedented since the, since the last time since yeah. 1789 or whatever. Yeah, and it's a form of an antiodromia because the thing that the Cokes want to avoid is more democracy. Right. They want control. Yes. And uh, the, the expectation would be that you'd have these 
draconian amendments added to the Constitution. Maybe some of them would involve voting. Uh, and so the very thing that they're trying to do uh, becomes the thing that they loathe. You now have these blue state forming a, a new kind of confederation. Right, a more democratic, small d Absolutely. democratic. Yeah. Just, just as we have talked in the past, you make it a direct, deliberative democracy. You and make yes. it, lo you localize it. As you have as much every workplace level of democracy power. you can. Every level of power, exactly. So there are hierarchies, but those hierarchies are, are flipped, right? So that there are people coming in and out of them constantly, right? into right. positions of influence, of authority and out. And right? nobody can hold it. Nobody can, nobody can uh, retain the, these positions of power. Right. And there, then they would also be legitimated by the deliberative democracy that occurs at the lower level. Right. So presumably whatever is happening at the lowest level must that's the, the foundation. Right. So it's like that if that is enacted properly and and truly in a de deliberative manner, then it would only go up to the next level after that process is successfully sure, completed. It's a good idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I would love to see that. However, you, so I, I'm with you and I could agree completely about the enantiodromic nature. Hey, cat. Of, uh, Clouseau. Yeah, Clouseau is visiting. Um, of uh, potential for the Koch brothers' effort. Um, but you said that this applied to me. So you're saying if I were to get elected under, or anyone was to get elected under the People's Party banner, by entering into the system, we would become corrupted in some fashion. Well, you sort you of would, structurally. You would certainly be susceptible to corruption because in order to play within that system, you have to form coalitions. So you can imagine you're you're joining with the squad, mm. but your position is a little different because they can still consider themselves progressive Democrats. I'm messing with the camera. Sorry. I can see it's that. out of focus. <laughs> I can see that. Um, so yes, you have to play within within their playpen. Right. Uh, now, so what I'm urging you to do is start a movement for a new constitutional convention. Get your the, the Bernieites and the progressives mm. and the people par People's Party people to understand the power that this could have. Yes. Yes. I, well, I mean, if I do get involved in any capacity, not you know. Uh, I will, I will bring that into the conversation. Yeah, because I think the states that haven't signed on are like the blue states. Right. Because they, they think that if they sign on to this convention, it's going to, it's feeding, it's feeding the Cokes and the Republicans. Right. No. No, no you can jujitsu it. Just exactly. It on. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Get them in the guard. Get on yes. top. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. And I mean, I, you know, I'm in favor and I argued, I've been arguing as well for reconstitution for, for some years. I think it's the only peaceful, you know, this is where I was a couple of years ago. I was like, well, reconstitution, you know, that'd be great. And then I was like, eh, fascism. <laughs> Turns out we need a revolution, <laughs> you know, to put it simply, but I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, it's, the Civil War was fought on, on a negativity. The negativity right. was, we want to abolish this practice. Now, we know that, that we understand that 
that the South will tell us, oh, it was about states' rights. Yeah, states' yes. rights to have slaves. Yes, states' rights to do what? Right. Yes, to control your, your plantations and to have slaves. Yes, so right. it's, it, it, it comes down to slavery. But the idea was to abolish slavery, and then what? Well, then we saw through Reconstruction the vision that the Republicans had about how to, how to rebuild the nation. Mm-hmm. Once again, we see the, the corrupting influence of power how that was completely co-opted and destroyed right. by making agreements with powerful members of the Southern class, the upper class that had been reinstituted by Andrew Johnson. Right. Yes. Yeah. So reconstruction, which was you know, doing impressively good work was destroyed. Pull federal troops out of there. It was ended too soon. I mean, that's the at the bare minimum we yeah. can say that. Yeah. The, and the shifting from the control by sort of the generals to that's right control by local political and economic elites. Yeah, it was it's the bargain. It was the bargain made uh, in the election to who of the Rutherford B Hayes and who was the other guy? Right, the corrupt Harry? bargain. Right, eighteen seventy seven. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. The, the yeah the bargain was we will throw the election to Hayes, uh, I think Hayes, it was Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes, in exchange for your withdrawing troops from the South. Right. That was the, that was the grand bargain. And that's that was the only the- time that it's gone to the House, right, of representatives. Yeah. And they picked the guy who lost. Oh, wait, didn't it go to the House uh, with Adams and Jefferson? Oh, I think you're right. And Aaron Burr. Yeah, I, I think, think it did. Right. Uh, but yes, but that was, uh, yes, that grand bargain didn't work out very well. No, but I, I guess I want to. But I was going to say, so that, oh, so, so the, I don't know that it's a strong enough position to say we want to abolish slavery. Mm. Apparently it was. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the South considered to be, you know, the Confederates and, and seceding. This one would be a pro-democracy, pro-deliberative democracy, direct democracy position. Mm. Right? It's not restoring our Constitution. It is, as you said, reconstituting yes. our democracy. I think, okay, maybe this just occurred to me, and maybe you'll agree, but I think this, is, this makes more sense to me from my side, because the difference that I'm seeing is like slavery was an issue and a, and a divisive one, and one that could not be compromised on despite your great-great-uncle's best efforts. Um, but it was not, it was not really revolutionary. In other words, when the union, when the North won, we kept the basics, we kept the constitution, we added some, you know, some really, uh, significant amendments, right? Right. Including especially the 14th, but the basics, it was a preservation of the of the system whereas when you're talking about democracy as i see it the only way of thinking about that is as a as a more holistic vision or or comprehensive transformation away from the current system and into something new i right. think it's more revolutionary even if we don't want to it, do it in the manner of a revolution or call it a revolution or whatever, right? Whereas slavery was sort of this binary, like free the slaves or keep the slaves, but we're going to keep the system either way. And I think the Confederate 
constitution was, I'm not very familiar with it, but I think it was quite similar to the regular constitution with some protections for slavery. So even they didn't really want to, they just wanted to keep their slaves. Whereas you're talking about being pro-democracy in a system that's never been democratic and in the face of an ascendant neo-fascism, that to me demands something more revolutionary, at least in its articulation. I'm thinking here, I mean, this is something that we've talked about before, I think a couple like years ago now, more like a Thomas Paine type moment where you can have a common sense articulation of a of grievances and maybe combined with which pain lacked a more comprehensive vision of where we go of of where we should go moving forward do you get what i'm saying like I, yeah cuz i don't think you're saying that the pro democracy strain of the population that you're identifying would just say, yeah, let's keep things as they are, but let's squeeze out these fucking maniacs who are trying to kill us. We, rather, they would say, we need much more democracy than we have had before, and we need to deal with these fucking maniacs. Yeah, you, you might gain some, you would gain some real traction by couching it as throwing out the maniacs. <laughs> yeah. Because that's instantaneously recognizable. As, as something that is harmful and will destroy the country. Do you think, before you go on, I just want to ask you this. Do you think there's a place or a space for, rhetorically speaking, for someone to really pointedly uh, condemn these neo-fascists for what they are in the public discourse? I, and I think that's lacking, incredibly lacking including among the Biden's uh, administration's fondness for bipartisanship. These are not people to be worked with. These are people to be expelled and shut away from political participation. They have forfeited their right to political participation in our polity. Yeah, uh, well, there's a polite form of what you're describing where you have people uh, like Timothy Snyder, who wrote the book on tyranny, right, trying to warn us about where we are now in the context of other tyrannies around the world and in earlier generations. You have people like, uh, is it Sarah Kenzior? And and uh, Chalupa, what's her name? Alexandra or Andrea? I think it's Andrea Chalupa, who's a, f- a filmmaker. They have something called Gaslit Nation. They have a podcast called Ga- Ga- Gaslit Nation, where they are outspoken about the level of crime and corruption of the Trump syndicate and now the whole Republican Party. Right. What, what I haven't seen, the only person I've seen who is outspoken and vehement in the way you're describing is Keith Olbermann. Mm. I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, probably don't because you're not on Twitter very much, but Olbermann, you may recall, began as a sportscaster, then was (laughs) hired as a political commentator on MSNBC. He's been fired from numerous jobs. I think maybe he's prickly to work with, but 
<laughs> he just had, for example, a two and a half minute rant where he said, uh, let's stop playing around here. Let's stop doing a January 6th commission. What we want, he said, just cut out the bullshit and go right for the indictments. Indict these motherfuckers in, in the House and the Senate who helped foment this insurrection. Go for the indictments. Yeah. <laughs> he concludes by saying, and why? Why do I say we should do this? Why? Dave Chappelle told us why. Why? Fuck them. That's why. <laughs> That's why. Now, I agree. That, that's out there uh, in someone who has some uh, some public persona, some some public face. He's out there saying these things. But you're right. Within within political rhetoric, right? We don't have enough of it from the this, leadership. Yeah, I, I'm sure they're they're not going to do it, right? Because they're in the system that we just described, and they See, think. And that's- that's where I think someone from a party like the People's Party could play a, an important role to be just viciously uncompromising in calling these people what they are, you know, our enemies. I, I, you know, this is where like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the others by they are co-opted in the way I think you're describing. Now, I'm not saying that it would be impossible for a green politician or a people's party politician to be co-opted or corrupted by the system but at least by stepping outside you got a bird in your house or what no no there's a reflection on on a book oh okay. i'm getting on the screen you can't see it but it's i thought it might be you know the light is shining on a book it's called the metaphysical club but never mind oh i was hoping it was like you know wallen's politics yes and vision that's, or yes i was just gonna say something that yeah the the uh the netherworld, the, the, <laughs> the Ethereum is saying to us, look, you have our blessing. Keep yes. talking. Go back to the basics. Yeah, Consult right. the Bible. Anyway, sorry, I distracted you. No, I was just saying, I think there is space. So I'm, I, I do agree with you in the general principle that by participating in what I would call the corporatocracy, what Woling calls a corporatocracy, the inverted totalitarian system, by participating in that in any capacity, you are necessarily becoming corrupted, co-opted, complicit, etc. at least at the margins or whatever. However, someone in the Green Party, in the People's Party, is at least outside the duopoly, the, the, the major political party duopoly, right? Such that they have much more leeway and much more freedom, I think, and less, uh, they feel the effects of that corruption less acutely. That's my, that's my hope or my thought yeah. on yeah. that. You might not uh, believe it's possible. Well, but. if, if you are running slates of candidates with that perspective and you're willing to go into the house chamber and take to the floor and say incendiary things, then you become the equivalent on the left of Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is okay. But the problem with the system is that you're going to have to caucus with somebody. And that is going to be the Democrats. And they're then going to, the Republicans are going to whine and cry <laughs> and demand that the spineless Democrats strip you of your committees. 
Fuck them. Fuck them. If em. you don't care, if you don't care about your committees, yes, then I'm saying you're the Marjorie Taylor Greene. You have no committees any longer. Right. You just take to the floor. They can't deny you that. And you say incendiary stuff yeah. about how corrupt the system is. You know, this is something that I, I don't understand why no politician, maybe politicians do this and I'm just not in, in the right districts because, you know, I'm living in Scottsdale, Arizona and our Republican representative is an asshole. Russell a, Pierce. <laughs> yeah. Well, not anymore. <laughs> and also a criminal. He's been, you know, fined by the ethics committee because he's a douchebag. Of course. <laughs> but uh, why candidates, not candidates, why, why representatives don't go every week to their districts and say, you know what goes on here? You know what's really happening? Right. Here's Pull what's going on. Curtain. Pull you back know. the curtain and show everybody. Here's why things aren't getting done. But you have to call out people to do that. So as long as you're okay having no friends, no colleagues who will work with you, just rhetorical bomb throwing, yes. pointing out the flaws of the system, that's okay. But you, there's got to be another strategy over here. Sure. Right? There's got to be a like – we come back to this. There's got to be a vision of what you want and where you're headed. And for me, I want a roadmap. How are you going to get there? It's not just enough to have the vision. How are we going to get there? I think this constitutional convention, mm. as difficult as it might be in trapping people in, unfor in unfortunate circumstances, so trapping inner cities that are highly democratic mm. in red states that are going to become even more draconian and oppressive if you're willing to live with that uh then the constitutional convention that would establish a new kind of of constitution is something worth playing around with yes well you know the it, people's party would write a constitution that would be i mean i'm i'm completely with you on the constitutional convention like i think that is perhaps the only uh, existing mechanism within the existing system to produce the kind of change that yeah. we both agree is urgently necessary to destroy the system. Yeah. Right. That's the only lever to pull, you know, self-destruct, whatever lever to pull. And so I'm with you on that. And, and, you know, yeah, if the people's party or any group could facilitate that, I'd be on board, but well, I do. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I, I can't, I certainly can't speak for the people's party, but if, but if I personally were to get in there, I would do, ex I would want to do anyway, exactly what you just described and, and uh, be the sort of um, the gadfly basically for the system. And, and it's not just performative because I think this is, it could have this potent effect if anyone does this, I think this is exactly what Bernie Sanders did actually, is that when you are willing and able to speak publicly, loudly to a wide audience, these types of things, you are expanding the limits of the possible, right? Because you are, because people are seeing like, oh, this fucking guy is saying these things. And I agree. These yeah. things that have been yeah. unsaid. And you know what I mean? Like, but, I think yes. that's extremely powerful. Like, can you imagine if but, Bernie yeah. 
or someone like that was saying what we're saying, even just about the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, yeah, but it can't be enough just to throw the rhetorical bombs. Agreed. It's only okay. one piece. Because people may say, God, the system is corrupt. Look what's going on. Look, these lobbyists are just buying votes. They don't call it that, but that's what's really happening here. <laughs> the Pentagon is full of defense contractors who are just bilking the public of billions of dollars for the bullshit that we don't need. All of these systems and, and, and processes are just rife with corruption. Okay. They say, yeah, that's right. What's the alternative? Then you have to link it. Right with something that is going to be positive for them to say, here's the way it could be. I don't, I don't see why. Okay. Back up within the system. You could probably be expelled for violating rules of the, of the house. True. Right. And so it might actually unite. It might be a bipartisan <laughs> expulsion. Yes. Right. To have, that's right. To have you thrown out. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the damage you can do from their perspective uh, might be extensive. And from your perspective, it's not damage, it's growth. Right. If people right. are hearing your message, people are saying, God, he's right. This is, this is a corrupt system, but you know, it's what we've got. What can we do? Well, what can we do is over here. Right. You know, it's, you know, here's why the system's bad. Here's a system that could be better. It's got to have the vision and, and yeah. especially probably a written constitution as you as yes. you were suggesting but but the, one of the keys might be sortition as we talked about last encounter and we've mentioned mm. it before yep i don't know why people wouldn't say that's a good idea i think people would i think people do <laughs> honestly i've yeah. heard that in many outlets places you wouldn't expect so if you can get if you can get uh so so here's the here are the two prongs right <laughs> leaving aside uh the, the generator behind the prongs. Right. Uh, the metaphor is breaking down quickly. <laughs> okay. Prong. So, so prong, prong one is you, you need public figures with platforms to get the message out. The first message is things are corrupt. They can be much better. Right. The second prong is a movement built uh, of how things could be better. Now, maybe you become one of those public figures because you actually run in a district in New York and you win because you're just telling the truth. Right. Yeah. And you're saying, look, it's a corrupt system. Why would you want to be part of a corrupt system? Because I want to expose it. And once exposed that, you know, it, it's like going to the doctor. I feel sick. Why do you feel sick? Well, you tell me the doctor examines you. Here's the problem. Okay. That you Rory, the doctor, here's the problem. Here's why you feel sick. Well, what do I do? Do I take a drug? You cut it out? Well, we do both. Here's what we do. Here's the, here's the prescription. Yes. You know, Dr. Rory has the diagnosis. Now Dr. <laughs> Rory gives you the prescription. Which, of course, is the classic Socratic imagery also. The doctor. Right? The doctor. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, you, you try, even in running, you could gain some recognition if the if you can fulfill all the requirements for getting on the ballot and blah blah blah. Right. Well, that uh, would be that's not I, that's not my. <laughs> yeah, I that's some. Yeah. I can't fill out forms or you know follow deadlines, so yeah, it's got to be out. Nor should you. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, so but but that's what you need. You need a uh, a 
some kind of growth of prominent of people with with some public platform yes. that allows them to get the message out. Uh, yeah, and, and then you have the, the messages tied into the vision, and the vision is tied into some real practical steps that can be taken to try to uh, not just no, try to rebuild the system, reconstitute it, restructure it. Yes. I think, yeah. I guess, uh, well, we're probably about out of time, but I want to say a few more things here briefly. Okay. Is I think, I think, and I think you probably would agree with this based on some of the stuff you wrote in What Hath Trump Brought. I, I saw you mentioned climate stuff a lot in there, which I was happy to see, but, and just ecological stuff. But yeah. um, uh, I think the Green New Deal and associated things could be a, a decent foundation for the type of vision that we're talking about. A good, yes. you know, seed crystal, yes. right? As long as you don't start with that. Right, yeah, right. But just me informing our thinking and- Right, you know, but meaning, you said this last encounter, meet people where they are. Right. Where are they? What do they want? They, as we said, they want their basic necessities met. They want to be sure that you know they're, they're right, they're going up the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Right. That they're feeling secure, they feel like they belong. There's a group of people they're with. Uh, they want work that has some meaning, which dignity. Yeah, and, and decent pay. Uh, that that's where you begin. Just a life of of flourishing. Yeah. Well, how do you get that? Well, basic needs are met, but then you know we need some other things, <laughs> like we. If you want security, it's not enough to say my house is secure, my street is secure, my neighborhood secure, my town, country are secure. No, your your planet is in jeopardy. Right. And the Green New Deal brings you all the things you want. It brings you a well some skills. Work with dignity because you're helping people immediately retrofitting their homes or building a new electric grid or you know expanding expanding broadband, uh, whatever it's going to be. And you're helping the nation and the, and the planet. Yes. So I think it can all grow out of, of meeting people where they are. I agree with you. And I think that would, that's the rhetorical through line, right? From this, the high level abstract planetary stuff, drill straight down to the local immediate felt needs, yeah. you know, everything you're yeah. just saying. The immediate needs, and, right. You know, because I think it, it's the, we, I talked about this in, in Wide is the World. Right available where all mediocre books are sold. <laughs> uh, why does the world talks about the importance of identity? Right? Yes. And it ripples out like a pond and you start very small. When you're an infant, you, there's only you. <laughs> and then it, it begins to ripple out. And that's exactly what you're saying. That's the through right. line. Where, where, are, where is your identity? Where, right. where are those you, concentric circles, those which concentric go circles. all the way right. back to Cicero, right? The, yeah. The individual, the family, the town, the city, the state, the, the nation, the world. The nation, the world. Yeah. And you can, as you feel more and more secure within those boundaries, the boundaries expand. They just expand almost by nature, right. almost naturally. Because you don't have, I, I think part of it, I would argue, is you don't have to attend so much to those smaller circles. If you, you know, if you're not a hunter gatherer, you don't have to fight every day for your own individual and familial survival. So right. you can start thinking about your neighbors, you know. Right. Yeah. To put it, you know, yeah. Crudely. When you are when you are secure in both uh, what you have and who you are, you can then begin look outside yourself to others, and that yes. that circle can begin to expand. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, I interrupted the seed crystal idea. Oh yeah. Just saying that I think, I think that that would work well as a foundation for, and sort of, a um, you know, uh, an orient orienting, uh, starting point for articulating the type of vision, the replacement vision that would necessarily need to coincide or, or, uh, come in parallel with the condemnation of the existing system, right? So it's not enough, and I think this is what you're saying, and I think I agree, is it's not enough for me, Chris Hedges, you, anybody, to come in and destroy, condemn the system, say what's wrong with it, et cetera. You have to both do that and, if you want to enact real political change, offer a comprehensible and comprehensive replacement alternative right yeah so a new yeah. vision yeah the old vision sucks this is why this is a new vision and it's great this is why and you have to be able to weave those together i think although there's probably a sequence right for most people they need to come to see why the existing system is bad before they can wrap their heads around why something else might be better just thinking educationally but also I think part of the value of the Green New Deal is that it, it's so capacious for the reasons we were just talking about pertaining to identity that you could, it, it, uh, it's conducive to differentiated instruction depending on audience, right? Yeah. So if you're speaking to coal miners in my home county in Western Pennsylvania, you don't necessarily talk about that high level abstract planetary stuff you talk about making sure that they can pay their bills and have a job and these types of things. Yeah. You know, more immediate stuff. Yeah. It doesn't mean, you know, you don't have to patronize them or whatever, but this is what they're concerned about. So talk about that and connect it to the vision. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't seem complicated to me. Maybe that's because I'm missing some huge chunk of insight. Uh, but it, if you're talking to coal miners in West Virginia, you just you, you talk to them. What is it you want? Right. The Ask coal, them questions. Yeah. The coal <laughs> mine's closed. What What is it you'd like to see? The coal mine's not going to open. Did, do you like going down there in the dark? Right. Did, did you like working and maybe getting black lung? Right. Or was it it's simply a sustainable paycheck and you were down there with your with your mates? Well, we can do the same thing for you. Uh you know, in what the sunlight. Your, what, yeah. What does your community want? What do you need? Here, here's what we have in mind. But that also, and this connects back to some of what we were talking about earlier, that requires trust. You would have to actually trust that these quote unquote rubes, you know, people that many people view in a negative and unfair light, actually understand their own lives and actually know what they need and what they want to flourish. Right. You have to trust trust those people. Yeah. There which was, most elites don't. One of the, um, I was going to say one of the anti-federalists, but I'm not sure technically he was an anti-federalist. One of the commentators during the founding of the nation, I don't remember who it was, wrote uh, a pamphlet or an article in which he said, why are we electing representatives? Who knows our interests better than us? Right. 
know, why, why are they representing us? They don't know me. They don't know what I do. They don't know who I am. They don't know my family or friends. And that's, that's exactly the point, right? We're saying, we, we're trusting people to say, here is who I am. Here is where I am. Here's where I'd like to be. Can you help me move along? So yeah, that's what we're trying to do. And you're right. Trust people enough to know, know their lives, know what, know their wants and needs. Yes. Right? Yeah, I know it's a novel idea yeah, in right. American politics, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it seems yeah, it happens all the time, right? And this is the problem with do-goodism, right? When liberals right. say, "Well, here's what you need in the inner city, we're going to bring this to you." Well, how do you? I, I, is that what they need? Go talk to the people who live there, right? You know, this is one of the things that that somebody pointed out to me recently with the defund the police idea. Hmm. If you go in into inner cities and talk to people, they don't want to defund the police. They want to increase the police. Mm. Yes, black black people are often terrified by visit by the police, but to have nobody to mm. rely upon is more frightening to them than being stopped for stupid reasons. Now, I don't know whether that's true, but it just seems to me it points to the same thing. Go talk to the people. Yes. What is it they want? Yeah, don't this, just assume and don't yeah. impose. Exactly. Two good lessons. Don't assume, don't impose. Yes. Communication and trust. Uh, so I guess the last thing I wanted to mention, you had said earlier um, about the need for you know charismatic or um, people with large platforms to coalesce behind a movement in order to help get it off the ground. And that's one of the things I've been encouraged by with the People's Party is that it does have you know some a few decent uh, decently well-known folks behind it, like Marianne Williamson, Chris Hedges, Cornell West, um, some others. And that for me, um, is just another thing that kind of speaks to the possibility for a genuine left coalition movement to come out of this in a way that we haven't seen with the green party, uh, you know, thus far. Yeah. Well, those are those are three. Well, two. Well, one. I don't know how big. I don't know how big their public platform is. Uh, you know, Cornell West couldn't even get tenure at Harvard. <laughs> Chump. <laughs> That's easy. Uh, I'm not saying they're you know megastars. I'm not no, saying that no, it's like but, guaranteed but, to succeed. I'm saying they're not nobodies. Here, you know? here's the issue for me. Can you get them in a room to agree on the message? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I think they have. There was a People's Party convention in 2020 uh, where many of them spoke and, and they have established and agreed upon sort of platform and, and principles, which includes the Green New Deal and UBI and things yeah. like this. For, for me, it's, you know, there's this, we've talked about this before, there's this lunacy movement now trying to strike critical race theory from all schools as if it's a widespread educational program. I, right? right. I wish it was as big of a problem as they think it is. Yeah. Fucking idiots. Yeah. So, so there's this, this thing spreading around that we have to do something about this. We have to clamp down on this when in fact, it's just not real. Right. I don't want to see something like that. You, you How do I say this? Okay, that's impossible. I was going to say you, you don't want to co-opt it by the right, but it's going to be it's going to be attacked and it's going to be be crazy. But what I don't want to see would be people getting together, Marianne Williamson and Cornell West and Chris Hedges, 
Noam Chomsky, people get in and they say, what we really need to do is, well, back up. I was gonna say what we really need to do is make sure that love is the solution to all problems. You know, I didn't want that kind of Marianne Williamson, Cornell West thing happening. Uh, I'm don't? all for love, love is yeah. great, but, but this oh, is why yeah, I mentioned great. CRT. Right. Give me the outcomes. What's the policy? What are the outcomes? What are you aiming for? Right. So if, if you're thinking it would be better to have average citizens serving in the federal government, why is that better? Mm. Is it better because it's a reinforcement of people's autonomy and it's the very definition of democracy? Good, fine, I'm with you. That's great. And it comes to the trust issue you mentioned. But at the same time, part of better has to be the outcomes are going to be good for people. Right. And that's that's the comprehensive vision that I was mentioning a minute ago, right? Like it's got, it can't just be, it can't just be policy or just be process or just be outcome. It's got to be all of these things. Yeah, yeah. And succinctly, which is well, tall. I mean, for for rhetorical purposes, at least, yeah, you've got to be it, able to communicate it. It's it, it's got to be a digestible, right? For this era of people with limited attention, <laughs> uh, uh, but right. So the message has to be clear, as you said, succinct, <laughs> simple. Right. You know, people can get it. And it, I mean, I think, you know, non-trivially, it needs to be uh, communicated in imagery in the, in what, in the form that Neil Postman identified politics as showbiz, right? Most people get their news from Facebook, from memes and fucking TikTok videos and shit. Uh, Did you know that, uh, so I've been writing this essay, uh, the nature of which will remain mysterious, <laughs> but uh, been doing some research on it. And I, I came across this uh, psychologist who's done this really interesting work. And what he found was, this comes back to one of my other themes, stories, right. that when people read stories and see stories, and this is the power of stories through film, not only do they sympathize and empathize with the person, the characters going through whatever trauma they're going through or whatever tension they're going through, their brains react as if they are that person. Right. So if you can get the stories right and present it in the right way, you can have tremendous impact on what people are hearing and seeing. And so you're then saying what you've encountered you've encountered research that shows that sort of neurochemically speaking people ex- experience yeah vicariously yeah uh, yeah through these stories that's interesting yeah they 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 are going through them as if they are in the in the story wow so i wrote to this guy and i said what if you're on a jury hearing evidence like this would they have the same reaction he said well we haven't studied it but he said my inclination is to say yes mm. 
but it's the power of story. We're hardwired. Our brains are hardwired for stories. And this is, this is one bit of ep- evidence that that's the case. Yes. I'm certainly um, uh, predisposed to agree with that completely. And that's why I'm so intrigued because, I mean, first of all, I agree with you. Like, you know, the, the quintessential human image is people around a campfire telling stories, right? At least exactly. in my view. Exactly. So that's like fundamental cave, to cave human paintings. nature. Yes. Cave hey, art. This, this big fucking woolly mammoth is over here by the pond. Almost got my ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take more spears. Yes. So, well, it's not surprising to me. This is on a personal level, directed to you. Right. That uh, now knowing you better than you know you, <laughs> I can say that it's not surprising to me that at one point you were really attracted to creative writing programs. Yes. And I still am. I still think of myself in that vein. Yes, and you should because. Politics is show business and show business is stories. Right. And stories are powerful. So you get the stories right. Uh, things can unfold from there. I agree. All right. I so agree. go off and write a story. Go on. <laughs> Leave me right. alone. Stop bothering me. <laughs> Will do. I'll, bother, I'll harass you again in two weeks. All right. I'll see you then. Peace.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. 